Welcome to the Global Missions Inc. podcast. The following is episode four in a six-part series on the history of the church by Terry Miller. This episode is called Restoration and Reformation. The outpouring of 1948 that began in 1948 was called by some the Latter Rain Movement. I was in Texas recently. Several of the brethren have ministered in the same place. I was there not long ago. We met a brother uh, who had been a, for many years a Pentecostal uh, pastor and uh, was now outside of the, uh, the, the organization looking for a new direction in his life. And we were having meetings there. I think Brian, Brian might have been there around the same time. I don't know. Were you there when we first met this Brother Lemons? Or That was your dad, I guess. Your dad. And uh, he was persistent. You have to be persistent. Hallelujah. In your walk with God, in order that the fulfilling of His purposes may be perfected. In you and through you. You must be persistent. Hallelujah. You must persevere. Well, this brother attended some of the meetings, the little camp meeting that we had there. And uh, things that he heard seemed to take root in his heart. And he sought me out to visit with me. And... I'm not the most sociable animal there is in the face of the earth, and I'm not saying that because I'm proud of it, but I'm kind of that like that. Just, you know, if you want to talk to me and I, I I'm just don't seem to have the time, just knock on my head a couple of times and <laughs> straighten me up. Uh, and I'm not so spiritual that I'm so ethereal and esoteric that I dwell in that cloud somewhere either. But that's just my personality. You wouldn't know that when I get behind this pulpit. But he wanted to talk with me. Now, I suppose a lot of you, like Brian, he would have set the date and the hour and the minute just like that, and I'll see you at 2 o'clock this afternoon. Well, me, if it works out, you know, okay. If it, if it happens, it'll happen. That kind of thing. That's more like me. And anyway, he wouldn't give up. He was persistent. He was in pursuit of something that his heart was crying out for. And do you know, at the place we were staying, the motel we were staying, this man came and literally camped himself outside the door. I don't mean he put up a tent, but he just sat there outside the door. He knew, I have to either come in or come out sooner or later. He was persistent. I wasn't in there, by the way, I was out. But he was right. Finally, I came home to the, to the place we were staying, and there he was. I don't know how long he'd been waiting. He says, I've done this several times, brother. I thought, oh boy, knock me in the head for sure. Uh, all right. And he said, uh, the things that you brethren have been sharing in this camp are speaking very clearly to my spirit to my heart. He said, you know, I was a Pentecostal pastor for many years, and now I'm just going sort of, I'm using my own words, but this is what he was saying, is I'm going through somewhat of a, a wilderness experience, and I need uh, the direction of God in my life. And he said, I want to ask you questions, some questions about the outpouring uh, in Canada, speaking of that began in 1948. I said, sure, brother, let's talk about it. And then, but first he said to me, but you know, he said, uh, there's a lot of stuff, that's the way he put it, about you guys on the internet. And I said, tell me about it. If you've got one of those machines, you'll probably know that's true. He says, I punched in this and I punched in that and all this stuff comes up, you know. And what's wrong with you guys? and what you believe, and what you think. 
And uh, it's out there. It's out there. It's voluminous. It's out there. And uh, he said that the strange thing, Brother Miller, he said, as I was reading about some of the things that they said was wrong with you, my heart was leaping for joy because many of those same things God has been making real to me since I've been in this wilderness experience. Tell me about it. He said, well, for example, on one of the sites that said these people are false because they believe in apostles and prophets and a five-fold ministry today. And I didn't say anything. And he said, and I believe in that. Move on. He said, it says that you believe in a plural ministry, not a one-man ministry in charge of a local assembly. You believe in elders like you read about in the New Testament and, and deacons. And he said, because of that, you're false. He said, you know, I believe that too. He says, you know, they said that you people believe in the nine gifts of the Spirit and that they can be imparted through the laying on of hands, hallelujah, and prophecy. I believe. And we went through, he went, he went through the list. I'm the listener here. He went through the list. And I believe he referred to communion, power in the communion, and all of these wonderful things. Restoration of all things that you know, I was just bubbling up inside. I could have shouted, Amen, 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 you know. I was just dancing. Have you ever danced for all that's within you and not even moved your foot? Some of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Some of you need to move your foot too once in a while. But the most of all, that joy of the Lord, which is your strength, must be bubbling up inside. That's what I was hearing this man say. He has since attended the elders and deacons meeting. He has since been at the, the Easter meetings with his wife and North Battleford. And, and they, are, they are just joyful of being. This is what they told us down in Texas now, of just having the opportunity to be with people of like mind and like spirit. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, praise His name. So even with peculiar movings and workings of God, even when they mean it for evil, you see, He can turn that thing around and use it for good. What do I mean? They say, you believe in this, you believe in that, and you believe in the other thing. So you're false, 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 false. And He takes that thing and He turns it around and a man like this one reads it and He says, But I believe in it. I believe in this. I believe in that. I believe in it. There's something here that's calling me. Hallelujah. 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 Well, somebody join me. Hallelujah. Praise the name of the Lord. I remember years ago ministering in a place in Winnipeg called Faith Temple. There was a lady in charge there. That's before I knew anything about the uh, the brethren from North Battleford. And uh, she was one of the greatest praisers of the Lord that you ever seen. She'd stand up there in that dead, dry hide old church and, and everybody just as dead as a doornail. And she'd stand up there behind that pulpit. And she, I, I don't want to imitate her. It was, it was beautiful. She'd just stand there and she'd stamp that foot like that. Hallelujah! 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 Nobody did anything. she keep going. She said, if I have to do this all night, God, let this people be free. And she's shouting, hallelujah, hallelujah, pretty soon. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! And the greatest old-time Pentecostal power meeting you've seen in your life broke loose in that place. And I didn't know that that place had been started by people who had been to the 
outpouring in North Battleford. And on the, on the pulpit are the words, He's the Lord of glory. And then later, when I inquired, I said, what is, why do you have that on, on your pulpit? And she said to me, Brother Miller, she said in a place up in Saskatchewan, way back 1948, there was a sister by the name of Spears. Maybe you know Phyllis Spears. And she received the song in the spirit that she sang in that place called Sharon. And it was, He's the Lord of glory. He is the great I Am. He's the Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end. And she said we plastered it right across the front of the pulpit. You may say, well, where's she today? Oh, she's gone on to be with the Lord. She's gone on to glory. But there was a woman... Uh, I'm talking about this pastor woman, according to her level of understanding, who endeavored to be faithful according to the light that God had shed upon her pathway. And because of her faithfulness to that, to whatever was shed upon her pathway, I believe the Lord Jesus welcomed her in to that heavenly kingdom. Many who you think aren't going to make it will be there before a lot of people who you think will make it. Because He knows the hearts of all men as He draws them unto Himself. Isaiah, in chapter 28, He's speaking prophetically in verse 9. He says, Whom shall He teach knowledge? And whom shall He make to understand doctrine?" Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept. Notice he repeats that again. Precept upon precept. To me, that's like, pay attention. Precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept. Line upon line. He says it again. Line upon line. Here a little and, and there a little. This is a picture of how God leads His people on. We begin with the milk of the Word. See, we said last night, quoted Peter, how we said we need to be established in the present truth. Paul said that we should partake of the sincere milk of the Word that we may grow thereby. And then he spoke of strong meat, which belongs to those who are ageable, or of, or of full age, I believe the King James translation says. So we see, we are on a journey. We are on a pilgrimage. We begin as born again, saved, child of God, a babe in Christ. And we feast upon the milk of the Word. We enjoy the milk of the Word. Hallelujah. But at the stage where we're at today, I don't really want to go back and drink that milk again. I shouldn't be there. I should be, have moved on in God to that place where I can begin to partake uh, of the meat or the beefsteaks we're in Alberta, of the beefsteaks of the Word of God. Hallelujah. Now we read in many portions of Scripture without reading uh, many, uh, many of them tonight, but just in, in passing reference, that there would come this great restoration uh, that the people of God would to be in the midst of a period of great darkness in the earth, um, uh, that confusion would come and they would be denominated and organized to death and men would hardly recognize anymore the church 
that we find described in the book of Acts and by the Holy Apostles. The early church, we read about in the book of Acts, was of one mind. It was of one spirit. It was one accord. It was in one place. Now, a lot of people put the emphasis on the physical place that they were. That's true, but they were in one place in another sense also. And that was a realm in the Spirit, a place in God, where He could pour out of His anointing upon them. There was that unity where they were of one mind, and they were of one Spirit, and they were of one accord. Later we read, and they all spoke the same thing. We read of the Holy Spirit being outpoured on the day of Pentecost. We all know the story. We all know the account. It's his story. Hallelujah. And uh, we read about uh, the apostles. And we read about the prophets. We read about the fivefold ministry for the perfecting of the church, for for the building up of the body of Christ and the necessity of this in that hour. It was God's plan, God's pattern. And it was a, who could say, but it was a mighty move on the day of Pentecost and in the gospel era. As long as men and women were led, and I don't, let's get this clear, we don't diminish women. Not in the least. God works with men and God works with women. Hallelujah. Men and women. Glory to God body of Christ. As long as men and women continued in the revelation that was given, as long as they walked in that anointing, you see, God is sovereign, but man also has responsibility. Given. God-given responsibility. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility bring forth A fullness in what God is accomplishing at any given moment. As long as they were led by the Spirit of God, they continued in this strong gospel order, if we want to call it that. Local churches were established everywhere. The gospel was preached everywhere in the known world. And the Word of God went forth with power. There were mighty signs and there were mighty wonders. And local churches were raised up. Lives were changed and transformed. And in every church and in every city, the apostolic ministry of that hour, they established or set elders and deacons over each and every local assembly. I was reading an article that someone gave me the other day from one of the leaders of what they they used to call the latter rain movement, who is still alive and writing uh, from that perspective. And he said, brothers, I've come to the understanding, he said, that no longer can we continue with that old pastor system that we've held on to all of these years. And then he wrote, and I was astonished at what he wrote. He said, you know what was revealed way back? In 1948, in North Battleford, about the church again being restored on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. This is right, he said. And how in each local church, just like in the New Testament era, there must be a plurality of elders and deacons, a plural ministry. See, the day of the one-man ministry, let's face it, is over. Yeah. Only some don't know it, but it is over. It is over. It is over. God is moving His people on. This is the time of the coming together of the body of Christ. Something catastrophic happened in early church history when they started to uh, compromise the teachings, the clear teachings and revelation of God with the world that was around about them. And they began to take patterns uh, 
from the world order and the world system. Emperors ruled in that day. One man ruled not only a nation, but many nations. And yet in the church of the living God, in that hour, there was a plurality of ministry. Contrary to the world order and the world system. But eventually, and we can't go into all of that tonight, uh, I've done a lot of work on it, and I know other brethren in the, in the ministry have done a lot of work on it. Brother Patterson has shared a lot of powerful things with me about the earlier years of the workings of God. Brother Andy Snoke is another one that he, I just love to sit and listen to him when he talks about church history. I'm kind of spellbound when I listen to him. You know, uh, maybe I have studied a few things. Maybe I hopefully have learned a few things uh, concerning uh, this subject. Uh, but to listen to somebody else to, pers- uh, to expound uh, from the perspective that is uniquely theirs in God, it causes you just to wow, you know, as if I never heard this before. Man, I read everything there was on the subject, but... Uh, that I know of anyway, but I've never heard that before. And these men and others have a way. That's why it's a body ministry. It's a plural ministry. Hallelujah. And we all, on every level, have to complement one another. Praise God. My ministry goes so far and no further. How about you? Same thing? Your ministry goes only so far and no further. If I'll get into trouble, I don't want to get into trouble. That's why I said, if I ever get into trouble. If I get into trouble, it'll be because I step beyond my ministry. You will get into trouble when you step beyond your ministry and gifting that God has given unto you. You will be a blessing and you will be blessed so long as you serve in that ministry and gifting that is uniquely yours and uniquely given unto you. This happened in the second century, and especially in the third century, when many began slowly to move beyond the ministration that God had given unto them. The idea of having a king as was in the land, appealed once again to many who consider themselves to be Christians. And as a result, without again going into much detail, we have the system beginning to arise uh, in, in the world of that hour of what they called the monarchical bishops. Now, a bishop and an elder is essentially... One and the same, an overseer, those are all different words, descriptive words of the same office. But a monarchial bishop, what is that? Or a monarchial elder, think about it. Canada, whether you know it or not, is still a monarchy. It's a constitutional monarchy. That means we have a monarch. And you all know her name, I hope. God, you know her name, (laughs) who is the monarch of Canada, the Queen of Canada. But just like in that day, countries had monarchs, countries had emperors, countries had kings uh, who ruled by decree and by, uh, you'd almost have to say, dictatorial powers. Some of the elders of that day, some of the bishops of that day, they liked what they saw in that system. Have you ever heard it said when there is a, a, an assembly with elders where they say, well, every, everybody is on an equal level and nobody can make a decision? That isn't really true. But the carnal mind will tell you that. That no decisions can ever be made. And that was exactly what crept in. And Christendom began to arise. And men became monarchs. Elders became monarchs. The monarchical bishop, no longer the plural of eldership, but a monarchical bishop. 
and this church and that church. Finally, they grouped churches together and called them a diocese. And there was a monarchical bishop. In other words, a, a head bishop over all of the churches in that area. There were under underlings, as they would call them, who were elders, sort of like assistant elders, but eventually they changed that too and they called them priests. So you had the monarchical bishops over an area and you had the one-man ministry in a local church which they would call a priest. The deterioration had set in. And eventually, almost all of Christendom came under its power. And then among the monarchical bishops, there was a talk about carnality. There was a move for supremacy. The monarchical bishop of Constantinople, the monarchical bishop of Alexandria, the monarchical bishop of Jerusalem, the monarchical bishop of Rome, there were five particularly that stood out. Those five all claimed or wanted to claim supremacy. One of them arose above the others and began to function in that capacity. And he was the supreme pontiff or pope, papa. In the Latin translation simply means papa. He was the father, the chief father. Amen. The chief of chiefs over all the other chiefs, the monarchical bishops. Some of them accepted it. Most did accept it. Some opposed it. And finally, the thing got so out of hand, and we have to just skip through all this, of course. But we're just skipping through the tulips, so to speak, tonight. Except they ain't tulips skipping through some serious hours in the history of Christianity. And uh, finally, it got so bad that the bishop of uh, our patriarch, he began to call himself patriarch, that sounded higher than bishop, the patriarch of Constantinople and the, the supreme patriarch of Rome were in such a dispute that they excommunicated each other from the church. The one said, you're excommunicated. The other one took the excommunication paper and threw it away and said, you are excommunicated. Now, just look at the, the silly carnality that men would allow to creep in to what should be a moving, ongoing move of the Holy Spirit. And so you ended up with Two major denominations. You know which they are? One of them is called the Roman Catholic Church. And the other is called the Orthodox Church. There are several monarchical bishops or patriarchs in the Orthodox Churches because they, uh, they are themselves not fully united. Probably if you go around Calgary, you'll see a building that calls itself the, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church. And down the street, there'll be one that'll say the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And then you'll go further and you'll see the Romanian Orthodox Church. And if you travel down into the States, there's one that calls itself the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia. And this is how it goes, you see. And they're all over the place. And uh, claim to be the continuation of the true church. And the patriarch or the Pope of Rome claims to be the head of the true church also. But in the midst of all of this shamazel, I don't know, is that an American word or a German word? I don't know why you say that here. Shamazel. In the midst of all of this shamazel, in the midst of all of this confusion, where was the church? Was the church anywhere? 
I want you to know today that God has always had a called out people, a righteous remnant who endeavored to follow according to the revelation of that hour. They were hunted down. They were executed. They were burned at the stake many times. Uh, the blood of the martyrs, uh, hallelujah, uh, is uh, spread throughout all of the world tonight. Uh, going way back to the beginning when Stephen was executed with the blessing. I don't know if it was with his orders, but with the blessing of the man called Saul who gave full assent and full consent to that execution of Stephen. Hallelujah, the man of God. But this same man became a great apostle of the church of the living God. And we quote his words in assembly after assembly, week after week after week, the great apostle Paul. This is what redemption is all about. Corey Ten Boom once said, no matter how, di- how deep you dig your pit, he is deeper still. Isn't it true? He is deeper still. You can't outrun the Lord. He is in pursuit. He is in hot pursuit. Let me tell you, He is determined that He will have you. And He will. Praise His wonderful name. Hallelujah. The kick against the pricks only gets you full of pricks. But the surrender, hallelujah, lifts you from where you are to where He is. But denominationalism for the next several hundred years prevailed. There was an amalgamation of the uh, religious system, which we call Christendom, and the government of the day. Constantine was the great emperor. He was said, it is said that he claimed to have been converted uh, to Christ. It didn't stop him from ordering the murder of his own brother on one occasion and the imprisonment of his own daughter on another occasion and the banishment of his mother on still another occasion. But he supposedly was converted. Whether he was or wasn't, the historians debate. I don't join the debate because I haven't got a clue. But I know God knows. God knows. But what happened with that so-called conversion was not good for the people of God. It brought about an amalgamation of church, essentially amalgamation of church and political power, church and state. For many generations, the church... Really, though the emperor held the throne, the church, so-called church, ruled in the political realm for generation after generation after generation. And when you read the history of that hour, which historians call the Dark Ages, you have to shake your head in unbelief, in disbelief at how far men could move away from the simple revelation and truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The form of godliness was so mighty and so powerful in the earth that that remnant here and there, scattered here and there, who endeavored to walk with God in the power of the Spirit became a hunted down and persecuted people but a triumphant people, hallelujah, in the realm of the Spirit. I wish we had the time to tell you about some of them. But we will move through history very quickly to the... uh, In fact, we'll just turn the page on 1,500 years. How's that? Not that we want to, but 
<laughs> we have to. Those who, who really are interested in more uh, in-depth study of these things, there's material available that I would even recommend. And uh, I've been working on this for years myself. Brother Oldridge told me, is the one who told me, he said, Brother Miller, he said, with all of this that you're gathered, you should put it together in, into, um, I suppose, a book form someday. And uh, give it to the the brethren for counsel and advice and and whatever, and then see where we go from there. I don't know if we'll ever get to that place. I I, I don't know, but there's a lot of information that would be helpful to to broaden and increase our understanding, so we know best where we are today. But so as we skip over uh, all of those years in the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox churches reigning supreme in the earth and really at each other's throats uh, consistently. It was a hard time uh, for many in the earth. Historians call it the era uh, of the the dark ages. One might call it uh, some of the darkest hours uh, of religion that the world has ever seen. Religion in that hour was not joyful. It was full of forms. And it was full of ceremonies. And things that once were full of depth and had meaning were changed and transformed into such a way that it was hardly recognizable anymore from what you read in the Scripture. Of course, the common people wouldn't know that because the Scriptures were forbidden to the common people. In fact, most of the, the, the priests of those organizations at that time personally did not own copies of the Scriptures. And Martin Luther, who was a Roman Catholic priest, a lot of people don't realize that, Martin Luther, who was a, a, uh, an educated man, a man who, uh, who had a, 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 the equivalent of a bachelor's degree, later a master's degree, who studied law and theology, theology even, and had a master's degree, he still did not own his own copy of the Bible. And one of the greatest gifts that was given to him, I believe he was on his master's studies at the university at that time, was a copy of the Holy Scriptures. And when the, the Holy Scriptures came into his hands in a personal way, a personal copy, it was then as he began to search the Word of God that his whole life and the whole life of the church of the hour would be changed and would be transformed. Jesus said, the words that I speak, and they are recorded here. He says, the words that I speak, they are spirit and they are life. Hallelujah. Praise His wonderful name. And so, the common people didn't have the Scriptures. Many of the priests didn't have the Scriptures. We think today of those organizations of how their men are so uh, highly educated in theology and in, in uh, this is not well known, but most of them are not well educated in the languages in which the Scriptures were written. They are educated in the Latin language and tend to use the, uh, the Latin Vulgate, which was a translation of the Holy Scriptures from Greek and Hebrew as their primary source. I read recently where Hans Kung, one of the great theologians, great, I mean in the sense of well-known theologians of, of the Roman Catholic Church, said that it is only, he said, in recent years that our men are beginning to study the original languages in which the Scriptures uh, were written. And I'm not saying that we have to know the original languages. The one who wrote the book is well able to interpret the book, hallelujah, to us. Praise His wonderful name. And His revelation flows according to the order that He has set and uh, which He has given. But uh, be that as it, as it may, uh, it was full of ritual, full of form and ceremony. And with all due respect, it really, all of that really seemed to stifle the very life of the Spirit out of the so-called 
churches of that hour. But in the midst of all of this was born a man by the name of Martin Luther. Luther. God had promised We've been talking about it, how he would restore things, line upon line, precept upon precept. That which has been lost, the prophet Joel declares by the Spirit of God, that will be restored. That which the canker caterpillar and canker worm has pretty well eaten up. All of that is going to be restored again. And he said it will be so mighty and so powerful. When I'm through, he said, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And he says, there will be deliverance in Mount Zion. And there will be deliverance in Jerusalem. And in the remnants whom the Lord your God shall call. There has always been deliverance in the midst of the remnant, hallelujah, that the Lord God has called throughout all of the ages Isaiah said that the restoration would come line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. The prophets of old spoke of God moving by His Spirit in restoration, in working with a remnant, elect, called, chosen of God, kind of a first fruits company. It almost seems in each and every generation as He brings them forth. And when things can get any darker, the light began to shine again in a mighty way in this old world. And there were many who were touched by the moving of the Spirit in that great outpouring that came to be called by men the Reformation. The Protestants, as they would call it, Reformation. The word Protestant meaning those who protested against the present order in Christendom, primarily that of the Roman Catholic reign of the hour. And uh, many were touched by the moving of God's Spirit. But Martin Luther came to the fore. We could talk about people who preceded him also. There were many, like John Huss and Wycliffe. Wycliffe translated the Scriptures into, into the common language of the people. And uh, when he died and, and he was buried, they thought that would be the end of of his peculiar workings, but not so. England seemed to be set alive and on fire because the Scriptures was available in the language of the people. And you know, the persecution came so strong, finally some of the, uh, uh, the Catholic leaders of that day said it's because of that man, Wycliffe, who was a forerunner of the things we're talking about today. They said that he is a heretic and he shall be burned at the stake. And somebody with a brain said, yeah, but he's already dead. And somebody who didn't have a brain said, and this really happened, go out and dig him up and bring him in. And they burned his bones to ashes. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? That's religion gone haywire. Yeah, but men like that were forerunners. John Huss was another one that the Lord raised up before Luther's time. Oh yeah, from which sprang forth the great uh, Moravian movement uh, of the Holy Spirit. But he too died at the, the martyr's death. Somebody was talking, oh I know who it was, Brad, talking to me last night, uh, Brad Stinson, and he said to some things about all these wonderful men of God, but he said most of them ended up being burned. Most of them ended up dead. I don't know. I didn't know what to say, so I said, well, what does that say to you? Yikes, I thought of it afterwards. What does it say to all of us? There's a price that we too must pray and pay. Maybe we won't go by the way of the fire and the way of that execution, maybe some will, but we will go, hallelujah, by the way of life because we have counted the cost and we have laid down this old carnal life to walk in the realm of the Spirit. Praise His wonderful name. 
But when things got very dark, this old world once again experienced the moving of the Holy Spirit in a mighty way. Uh, Martin Luther was born in Germany in uh, 1483. Now here's just a few facts. He was the oldest of seven children in a very uh, devout family, uh, Catholic family, and he was a brilliant lad. His mother was particularly religious and she encouraged him in that direction. He attended the University of Erfurt, graduating with a bachelor's degree. His father wanted him to be a lawyer. He thought being a, a priest, uh-uh, not you, Martin. You should be a lawyer. And I suspect there weren't too many lawyers at that time, so it was a good profession to be in. But he turned his back on his father's request and began to study, study theology. And uh, he not only had a bachelor's degree, master's degree, and that was by the time that he was 18 years of age. So he was a brilliant, brilliant lad. He did study law, however, along with theology, but he was hungry for God, and uh, he dropped out of school for a while. And his friends wondered what had happened to Martin. Something strange did happen. Martin was riding on his horse down the road, something like the Apostle Paul, and he was knocked off the horse by a literal bolt of lightning. Talk about getting zapped. <laughs> Knocked him flat on the ground. You'll think, oh, he had an experience like the Apostle Paul. Hold on a minute. There's more to that story. He was knocked off the horse by a bolt of lightning. He did not turn his face to the living God, but instead he prayed to one of the saints, as he had been taught, to St. Anne. And he promised St. Anne that he would give his life to Serve the church, the denomination that he was in at that time. I don't know if St. Anne heard him or, or, or didn't hear him. But he entered the Augustinian monastery and he became a very devout monk. And I'm sure a lot of people would say he must have been a troubled young man. I don't think he was any more troubled than any other young man who is hungry for God and wants to know God. There was a desire in his heart for a union with his Creator. As a monk in the monastery, he was extremely devout, and that is the right word. And later he was ordained as a priest, and still later, a Martin Luther, who would go on to become Dr. Luther, Dr. Martin Luther, a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg. A disciplined man, a dedicated man. He spent a lot of time in fasting and prayer, but yet, as he himself testified, he was not yet hungry for God, but he was not yet born again. He had not yet experienced what all must experience, this mighty justification by faith. Once when he was in Rome and going to the Basilica to pray, he made the entire walk up the steps of that great basilica on his knees, and he walked on his knees over the gravel chips that cut the deeper into his legs. And all of this he did, thinking that somehow he would do God a service and would gain the attention of God. So it is with religion. Religion is a form of godliness. It causes men and women to do peculiar things in hopes that they will gain the attention of God. I remember as a young lad in the colony where I was, a religious society, a colony where I was, where we were extremely religious, I became very conscious of the fact that I too, although religious as religious could be, in fact, one of the old elders said, the man is a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Can you believe that? And I was supposed to take that as a hip hip hooray. I'm on the right track, you know. A man is a Pharisee.
must say of the Pharisees, he said. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> so was Paul. Religious to the hilt, dead in trespasses, dead in sin, far from God. And yet, he was in pursuit of me. One day I went to my elder, I'll call him, Bishop, I suppose is the right word. Went to my elder and I asked him about this peace with God that I had heard others, Mennonite people, come and visit our colony and testified about, claiming that they had a no-so salvation, claiming that they knew God, claiming that they had a personal relationship with Christ, claiming that they were born again, claiming that they were saved and they knew it and you know how they would testify, and I'm on my way to heaven, and here we are, Pharisee of Pharisees, burdened down with the weight of religion and forms of godliness, knowing nothing of such a power such as they spoke of. And I asked my elder, my bishop, my minister, I asked him about it, and I said, I don't have that peace with God. I said, how can I know? that I am saved. He said, well, Terry, he said, I don't have this either. He didn't have it either. And he said, you can't know. He said, you can only be a good boy, live a good righteous life, follow all of the traditions of the church, be an obedient boy, and you will have the hope that at the end of life's journey, that God will, you hope, will smile on you. And He'll say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But it was not enough. It did not satisfy the longing that was in my soul as a young person. And I understand a man like Luther, religious to the hilt, trying to Please God, trying to serve God, trying to, through these forms of ceremony and religiosity, attract His attention. Hey, hey, look, 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 I'm here, I'm here. Help me, help me. That's all it was. But no hope. No hope. No assurance. Lost and undone. He did a lot of things, silly things trying to gain the favor and attention of God. He saw himself as a miserable, doomed sinner. One who could not find peace with God. And as I said, he had already had a master's degree from the university and still did not own his own Bible. Bibles at that time were in the hands of the institutional church where only certain scriptures were read to the public uh, on the, in the Sunday morning Mass. Um, but he longed to have his, by, uh, his own. And in the monastery, there was a vicar, an abbot of the monastery, who seemed to be a man whose own heart was turned towards God. And he gave Martin the gift of his first Bible. And this man began to read the Scriptures such as we have all been enjoined to do, to search these Scriptures, for they are they which testify of me. And in the midst of his study, as he was reading in the book of Romans, it was as if God had taken the light of heaven and, and shone it on the words, the just shall live by faith, the faith of the Son of God. And that moment, Luther would later testify. That moment, he came alive. That moment, all of the religiosity was meaningless. And it was the Son of the living God who reached down His hand for him. And Luther, hallelujah, was born again. Born of the Spirit. Luther would later write, it was as if, Heaven opened before me, and I opened my heart, and I asked this Jesus to come into my life and by faith to forgive my sins. 
And later he would, still later he would write and he said, I passed that day from hell right into heaven. That's the born again experience. Bear in mind at this time that the institutional conglomeration called so-called church was huge and very powerful, closely connected with political power and authority. Church and state were pretty much the same throughout all of Europe. The church was not teaching that the just shall live by faith in the Son of God. The church no longer taught that a man could know that his sins were gone and the way to God was through the blood of the eternal covenant by faith in the Son of God who loves us and gave Himself for us. Luther entered in an experience this mighty new birth in Christ. Here he was, a born-again Christian. Get the picture now. But yet a theologian in the Roman Catholic Church and one of the prime theologians of that hour. His classroom would be filled with priests in training and monks and lay people just to see and hear what this man of God is going to say to them next. He knew that the institution, he knew it was one. The institution, he said, needs to be reformed. And that's why they call it the Reformation. The Reformation. An attempt was made, I believe God was involved in all of it, but an attempt was made to reform the old system. But we have all come to know that you cannot pour the new wine into the old wine skins because the more of the new wine you pour into the old wine skins, the more they will burst for sure. And they burst asunder. Students flocked from all over Germany to listen to this man because he seemed to speak with a power and he seemed as it was an anointing, hallelujah, that they had not known. His classes were filled and class after class. And he had classes then again with people informally because they wanted to hear what this man who had been touched by God's Spirit had to say. People were drawn to him. When you have the life of the sun flowing out from you, people will be drawn to him. But strange things were happening in the religious world at the same time. Luther was left alone as long as he stayed uh, in, in his locale at Wittenberg, at the, the, the Catholic Church at Wittenberg. But his influence, and the influence of those who had the same experience together with him, began to move out throughout all of the land. But strange things were happening. The Pope at that time uh, of Rome, Leo X, needed a large amount of money to complete the magnificent St. Peter's Cathedral that we see today if we visit Rome. And in order to secure those funds, he proclaimed a general sale of what they called indulgences. And this meant that people could purchase I'm just telling it the way it really is. They use different terms. But this is the way it really is. That the people could purchase release out of purgatory for the souls of those who weren't there in the first place. But anyway, because there is no purgatory. But that you could, if you had a relative who died and went to purgatory, you could buy one of these indulgences which would be a document, in many cases, signed by the Pope himself, if the price was right. Mm-hmm. That's the truth. If the price was right. And you could secure the release of your relative, your dead aunt and your dead uncle or whoever, from purgatory, so that they could be released from there. Ooh. This meant that many purchased the indulgences. Some sold practically everything that they had and scraped together to get Grandma and Auntie Sylvia out of purgatory. 
and Uncle Fred and Grandpa Pete could all be free. But as they say in the West Indies, nothing tall goes so. It don't go like that. It doesn't work that way. There was a man who came by the name of Tetzel, John Tetzel. John Tetzel was a Dominican monk, a strange little fellow, and he wandered all over Europe, and especially over Germany, collecting money for the Pope's coffers so that uh, selling these documents so they could build this great uh, cathedral. Tetzel overstepped the mark sometimes. He said the indulgence was really meant for those of your relatives who had died and were, purgato- were purgatoriatized. We were in, we're in purgatory is what it was intended for originally. But Tetzel increased the meaning a bit to make it more attractive. He said, if you have one of these indulgences, especially if it's signed by Leo personally, he said, your sins will be forgiven, past sins, the price is right, present sins, and the price is really right, future sins too. And people bought into it. We laugh at it today because it's laughable. But people are gullible. And the religion is a disaster. And so, people tried to buy their way free, their tickets, so to speak, uh, to heaven. I believe a lot of them really thought that they would go straight to heaven. Tetzel was a busy man. Luther heard of this atrocity. Remember, he's still a Catholic priest. uh, But a born-again man. And he recognized in his spirit the decay that had come into the system that he was a part of and the unbiblical practices. Tetzel came to Wittenberg, to Luther's turf. And there he was trying to sell his indulgences. And it really upset Martin Luther. Tetzel even made this statement, and almost all historians corroborate this. This was kind of his jingle As soon as the money in the cup rings, the troubled soul from purgatory springs. Can you imagine? As soon as the money in the cup springs, springs, the cup, now, as soon as the money in the cup rings, you're right. Thank you. That's why we need the body. The troubled soul out of purgatory springs. They're free. Do you believe that, Donson? I don't believe it for a minute. And neither did Luther. And neither did anybody else who had a relationship with God in that day. That's how far religion can go. Men always have forms. And they're all around us today, even in the so-called evangelical and charismatic world uh, in which they're throwing the money into the coffers, hoping that some blessing will spring uh, as a result of that. Uh, In Jesus' day, he, he took care of it. He went right into the temple and he made himself a little whip. And went through that place and he said, My father's house shall be called a house of prayer and you have made it a den of thieves. And he went through that place and overturned all of the tables and he was essentially saying, Get out of here. You have desecrated a holy place. The holy place. Luther and his cohorts drove Tetzel out of Wittenberg. So much corruption was reigning that as a matter of academic etiquette and as a a professor of theology, Luther wrote up a thesis, a document of 95 theses, questioning many of the unbiblical practices that were taking place in that day. And what he did, which was customary for professors of that sort to do, 
when they had a thesis that was to be argued, discussed, or examined, they would nail it to the door of the church. And he nailed his 95 thesis to the door of the church as a basis for discussion and debate. He addressed many of the problems that were in the religious world of that day. And normally there would only be one copy and it would be nailed to the door uh, of the of the church. They didn't have fax machines in that day. But almost miraculously, like a mighty whirlwind, that document was circulated all across Germany and was read in village after village, in church after, uh, in churchyard after churchyard. Uh, and people's hearts were being stirred. They made copies by hand in many cases. And it was circulated everywhere. The nailing of those 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg would uh, be a spark that would unite all of Europe in a mighty reformation. Luther, of course, would, and I'm going to wind up shortly, Luther, of course, was brought before the Pope's representatives, later the Emperor himself, um, and he was asked to recant. And Luther stated publicly, unless I am refuted by the Scriptures, I cannot and I will not recant anything. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Luther was labeled as a heretic. One of the church uh, spokesmen of the day said, Luther... The whole world is against you. And Luther replied, Then I am against the whole world. And in the interest of time, a mighty revival and move of God swept all across Europe. And a mighty foundational truth was restored that the just shall live by faith. And from that day unto our day, millions have been recipients of the truth within their own hearts and have been born again by the Spirit of God. Father, tonight in the name of Jesus, we thank You that You have allowed us to look into these things and inquire into Your holy temple, into Your holy Word, for out of your innermost being also flows a river. O oh God, and we are bathing in the water of life today because of it. May our hearts be encouraged to press on, press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. If you would like more information about the moving of God's Spirit or resources for your spiritual life, please visit our website at www.globalmissionsinc.com dot org.